Morning, everyone. Our scripture reading this morning begins in Romans 12, verse 21, and continues through chapter 13, verse 14. You'll find that on page 920 in the Bibles that are in your pews if you wish to follow along. Beginning to read chapter 12, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Who, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual or immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, close yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Greg. Did you all have a good week? I know the week after Labor Day is usually a nice light week for everyone, right, in our society. It's like the whole city goes on vacation at the same time, right? Well, I'm obvious, hopefully it's obvious I'm joking. Which what we've all experienced, actually the complete opposite is usually the case. It's like our whole city just turns on a dime. 
The most obvious change, of course, are students of every age, along with families and support networks, not to mention teachers and administration are instantly entering these new rhythms or returned rhythms of school of life, uh, which brings in a myriad of varying emotions, of course, as anyone with children knows. All of a sudden, there are thousands more people on the subways, buses, streets, and highways within one day. And even those who don't have kids or employment that is directly connected to school year, those who are retired even, are impacted by the shift of culture, right? And I, I shouldn't actually have to say this. Everyone in this room knows this on some level. That in, and there's this instant additional strain on all of our commuting infrastructure and shop, everything, right? To drive our youngest daughter to school, uh, we drive along Finch between uh, Senlac and Talbot. Does anyone else here commute along Finch? Just a couple? Well, for months they've been doing this road construction to upgrade the storm and sewer systems. And the road is a complete mess of construction vehicles and pylons and brake lights for as far as you can see. Which just adds, of course, to the stress and the overload of this first week of school driving. And of course, this is nothing compared to further west along Finch, which I guess that's that way, along Finch and other parts of the city where the LRTs and subway construction have been causing traffic jams and small business closures for years. And it's really easy to complain and to get frustrated, to become stressed and impatient when the infrastructure makes an already stressful time of the year even more so. I know I want to. But then I remember that I'm sitting in traffic on the way to take my daughter to school. And the traffic is because we're actually upgrading insufficient sewer systems that cause flooding and, and sewage problems. And I'm driving my daughter to school where she has access to teachers and administration that is there to offer students an education. Sure, we can argue and complain about policies and money going to the right places and all that stuff. But our daughters are being given education. She's being offered, her and other girls are being offered the same education as the boys get. In February 2022, UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, they estimated that around the world there are 130 million girls between 6 and 17 who are out of school. Some of that is because of poverty and famine and drought, and the, where the girls are the one, and the women are responsible for walking long distances every day to collect the water. Or the family can't afford to pay for school, or both. Some of these girls, it's because of insanitary water and lack of feminine hygiene products. So as soon as they begin to menstruate, they have to drop out of school. End of education once you hit puberty. And many, of course, live in countries like Iran and Afghanistan where it is increasingly unsafe for girls to go to school. In Iran in the last year alone, as some of us know too personally, over 1,200 schoolgirls were deliberately poisoned to deter them from going to school, to spread fear amongst any who attempt to advocate for equal rights for girls and women. And here, I and many others complain about commute times and bothersome construction. Now, I bring this up for a number of reasons. One is a reminder that even though 
these are stressors, right? They're real stressors on us. We still ought to be very thankful for what we have here in Toronto. No matter how much we may disagree with the government's approach to all of these things, we have great reason to be thankful. We need to be sure we are aware and mindful also, the very least prayerful, not only for women and other marginalized peoples around the world, but for our brothers and sisters here in Toronto who've had to flee their home country, who've had to leave homes. I also bring this up because as we look at chapter 13 of the letter to Romans, which Deb read for us, it's important that we look not at simply through the eyes of comfortable democratic Canadian context. If you look through it through a comfortable Canadian context, we can say, along with Paul, the government isn't a terror, right? But if you're in any of these other contexts, governments are a terror, even to people who do good. So is Paul an idiot? Is Paul naive in saying this? Because it's not true what he's saying. Because governments are terrors to people who do good all around the world. We don't see it here, so it's easy for us, easier for us to read this passage. So we need to keep that global context in mind. Now, as much of us were taught that the Bible and politics are to be kept separate, the reality is, is that the Bible is a very political book. This will hopefully be no surprise to you, those of you who have been with us over the past couple of months. As we've been going through this book of the Bible, it's a letter written by a man named Paul to uh, Christians who were living in Rome, which was the center of a Roman Empire. And now by saying the Bible is political, there's a few things I'm not saying. I'm not saying the Bible tells us who to vote for in our democratic uh, system, all right? And if anything I say makes you go, ah, yes, so my party is right, then, then I've miscommunicated it or you've misunderstood it. That is not what the Bible, how the Bible is political. It doesn't give us policies on our, for our government, but it gives us things that we should prioritize in the ways of God. We definitely cannot use the Bible to say that one party or a leader is the Christian choice, that one people who know Jesus need to vote for this person or party. We as a church are part of the Canadian Baptist tradition, and so something that's part of our identity is the idea of a separation between church and state. The church is not to be controlled or influenced by the government, and the church is neither to be bowing to the government or to be wielding government power. There's to be a separation of the two, but that doesn't mean that the Bible isn't political. We do not align our, or advocate for one particular political party or leader, but instead we seek to align the values of Jesus and his kingdom and allow the Holy Spirit to work in each person to discern how best to advocate for the ways of God's kingdom when we vote. So what do I mean the Bible is political? Well, if you've been around church for any period of time, it's called God's kingdom, right? God's kingdom is what it looks like when God is in charge. Well, what is a kingdom? Kingdom is a political being. It is a political authority, a political reality. God's kingdom is what it looks like when God is in charge, when he reigns as the utmost authority. And so the Bible speaks prophetically also about Jesus saying that the government will be upon his shoulders. Kingdom is not just about how the God's kingdom is not just about how we are to act. 
It is not just about how, how we are to be here in this space, but it is about overseeing the structures and the values that impacts everyone who lives here. This is why dominant themes throughout the whole Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, are the theme of how to live as God's people through the law, which was given to them, which, and it was to show them how to live God's ways and character. And there's also the theme of having a king that ruled in the ways of God, a desire and a promise that was to be fulfilled in a coming Messiah, an anointed king that would usher in God's kingdom, his, God's authority, God's rule. If you're a structure person, God's structures and systems that care, that bring love, the ways of heaven on earth. In the New Testament, it continues. We have Jesus, whose gospel, whose good news was the kingdom of God. God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. His teachings were extremely subversive against the ways of human kingdoms. He subverted the ways of human power and religion, the structures and cultural practices and religious practices that marginalized people, that didn't care for the hungry and the thirsty and the poor and the outcast. Even his very death and resurrection subverted the ways of human power. He was a king that doesn't kill or destroy, but himself is killed and destroyed as the servant way to human flourishing and freedom from the fear of death. So then Paul, in the letter of Romans, actually continues in Jesus' way of subverting, of overturning, and challenging the values of the Roman Empire. We've already seen that Roman citizens were expected to worship Caesar as God, Augustus Caesar as the Son of God, and Paul makes the political statement that it is not Caesar we call Lord, but that the Son of God is Jesus. That we call Jesus Lord and Jesus only. This is extremely political. Paul makes the political statement that it is not Pax Romana, it is not the peace of Rome that is true peace, but it is the peace of Christ. Paul makes a political statement, as Sam shared last week, it is not the Roman body politic where we find our belonging, but it is in the body of Christ, the body of God's people where we find our belonging, meaning, and purpose. Consistently running all through all of the scriptures and the Old Testament laws, the prophets and the poetry, and into the New Testament gospels and the letters, all through scripture, these themes of God's kingdom and the way God's people are to live individually as a community, but also as a society, is to be what? Righteous and just. Everyone living in loving relationship to one another, caring for the afflicted, the needy, the hungry, the poor to rescue people from oppression and violence, return those who were taken into captivity back to their homes and their family, welcoming and caring for the foreigner and the stranger. These are dominant themes and consistent themes of what a king in God's name is, going to, is supposed to be and going to be in Jesus and how to order society with a priority on the oppressed and the marginalized, living out just righteousness and righteous justice in a way that is in direct opposition to the sinful violence and power-mongering ways of the world and human government. Not living in sin, but living grace that affirms the image of God in all people. And it really shouldn't matter where you are, where I am, where we are on the political spectrum. 
These are God's priorities. The difference is, and where we don't all agree, is on how to live like this, right? How to structure society to care for the marginalized, the oppressed, and the poor. Should it be the government? Should it not be the government? Should it be the church? How many tax dollars? What kind of programs? What kind of people? Which people groups? These are all, politi- these are all discussions that have different political opinions, But as Christians, the call all through the, the Bible is still the same, is to make this a priority, but it doesn't tell us how exactly to do it. And this is where we have the freedom for political differences, even within the body of Christ. It is how this is done and who is to do it is where we have differences. But the question of whether these things matter to God should never be in question And if we question it, all we need to do is pick up the Bible and start reading because it's everywhere. These themes that dominate all through Scripture and throughout the book of Romans. And then here, in Paul's most political statement yet, Paul writes a statement that from all appearances kind of goes against what he's been saying. Romans 13 verses 1 and 2. Let everyone be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Let everyone be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. This is a verse that has been used over the centuries. Usually when people are criticizing the government, whether it's in 5th century Rome or 16th century Geneva or 21st century North America, when people in power use this verse when they want to influence Christians to be domicile. This verse says, oh, don't go against this because to go against it is to go against God. Paul goes on, Romans 13 Um, three to five. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right. Interestingly, this word terror, phobos, is the same word that later talks about giving um, respect to those who respect is due. It's actually the same word. It's fear. Phobos, it means fear. Which is just interesting that Paul is telling us that our authorities won't do terror to those who do right. And then later he's telling us to give terror that is due to these people as well. But anyway, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. That's important. God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is one piece of advice, again, that it's not too hard to take here in Canada, or at least maybe let's just not think about it too hard, because we get to vote for our leaders. (laughs) We have some control as members of society where our daughters get to go to school and our commutes to work may be long and even longer from construction, 
But what about when a politician uses this verse to justify separating children from their parents at the border? To justify pushing children and their families back in the waters at the border in Texas, pushing them back in the water against the barbed wire fences so to keep them out of the country. What about when hundreds of Ethiopian migrants whose their commute is not through construction, but their commute is through grueling mountaintop climbs, and when they come to where they're coming to work, they are slaughtered by the hundreds by the Saudi Arabian border guards. What about when Russian civilians see the war against Ukraine for what it is, and they want nothing to do with it, and they want to speak against it? Or how about when women and girls are being marginalized in Iran and other countries all over the world? Even what about in ancient Rome, when the church was persecuted, where people were killed for confessing Jesus as Lord and not confessing Caesar? Is Paul saying that God actually has his hands in these things? And some will try to argue, yes, God is in these things. And we just need to trust his sovereignty. There's another word that gets used, abused all the time. If we don't like something or can't explain it, we just say, oh, trust God's sovereignty. Let's stay docile and just trust God's sovereignty. Let everything, everyone be subject to the governing authority. Everything happens for a reason, right? However, the people who usually say this only say it when the people they voted for are in power, right? What you need to do is if someone ever says, you hear someone saying that, Wait till there's a vote and the other party gets in. And then ask them again. Ask them again after next election when another party gets in power. Then it will be, oh, this godless government. Right? Our country is moving away from God. And we need to, we can't stand for this. Until their party gets back in. And then it's, oh, submit to the ruling authorities. Right? Now, Coming to this scripture, there are many different ways these verses have been interpreted over the centuries. This is extremely basic, but anyway. Some say it's possible that Nero, who was the emperor at the time, he wasn't actually that bad as far as emperors go. So at the time that Paul was writing, he was on board with it. He was fine with it. But then, you know, when it got worse again, he would have written something different. I think this is extremely unlikely, and it doesn't really give Paul a lot of credit. Some think that Paul was telling his listeners to just don't draw attention to yourself. If you obey the government, you'll, just, you'll avoid persecution. Though, of course, early in the same letter, Paul talks about suffering and persecution in ways that suggests he knows that per- suffering and persecution is part and parcel of what it means to be a follower of Christ in the Roman Empire. That it's going to happen. And so we need to find strength in Jesus when it happens. And some will say that Paul is simply being ironic which is probably the easiest one. If we just put air quotes around everything in this verse, then we can just kind of ignore it. A thing that I think is very likely happening here is that Paul, as we know, was a Jew. He was very familiar with the prophets like Isaiah, who said that God used unrighteous nations to punish Israel and the Jews for their sin. And so, therefore, it is likely that Paul maintains this understanding of God's working, that God could even use an evil nation to do God's will, whether it be Assyria, Babylon, or Rome. But as Ron Sider in his book, Just Politics, writes, even if God used other nations to do his will, that does not mean that God approves of the vicious ways that Assyria wreaked havoc. 
In fact, the very text in Isaiah that describes Assyria as God's rod to punish the unfaithful Israel, he also sharply condemns Assyria the way that Assyria has done it. He condemns the arrogance and destruction of many nations. So even in that situation where, where, where the Jews would believe that God is using these unholy nations to bring judgment, they're still not okay with the way that, that it's done. And they challenge it. I think this helps to get at the heart of what Paul is saying in this passage and what it has to say to us today. First, as verse 13, verse 1, chapter 13, verse 1 says, there is no authority except which God has established. And I think we need to get away of thinking this as to mean that God is the puppet master of the authorities. That God is up there pulling the strings. And that gov- uh, he is the puppet master of the authorities and the governments. And therefore, what they are doing is God's will. And we shouldn't question that. What Paul is emphasizing is that God is over the authorities. This is actually another one of Paul's subversive statements. Caesar is not the top authority. He does not have the ultimate power, but God is the one who is over Caesar. This is actually the type of claim that would get Paul killed for belittling the emperor, for speaking against the empire. It is not Caesar, it is not kings, not presidents, prime ministers, or supreme leaders. But God is the ultimate authority over all authorities. And one day these authorities will find themselves before the throne of God and have to account for their actions. The context of what Paul is saying is important for us to also understand this. Right before this, Paul said in chapter 12 to offer our bodies individually and as a community, as the body of Christ, to offer ourselves to God and to what? To not conform to the patterns of the world. To not conform to the ways of the world. Our worship, our very lives are to be against the patterns of the world. The ways of the sword and of fear. The ways of empire. Then the verse right before the one about the governing authority says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So if there's anything in our thinking when we think about obeying the authorities, if we think then we can turn our eyes from evil or that we can just live in the pattern of the world, we've completely missed Paul's entire point of his letter. We need to keep it in context. He continues this call to live with goodness and doing right what is right. In fact, what is... What is the state? So what are kings and courts and emperors? What is the state called to do throughout the Bible? To restrain evil, to punish evildoers, and to do good. Paul knows the ways of Rome are to force peace and even to force good acts with the sword and with violence. So in this situation, do good. Heck, pay your taxes. Even with everything going on, even the oppressive levels of taxes that Romans built aqueducts and sanitation that, be- that bettered the lives of its citizens. Rome built roads that Paul's entire ministry was dependent on. Paying taxes to Caesar, which even Jesus tells his followers to do, was part of what literally paved the way for Paul and other Christians to spread the gospel throughout the empire. There is good 
that comes from this. And there are good things that can be done within what the empire does. But this does not mean we are to stand idly by when governments and authorities justify practices or structures that create injustice, oppression. Instead, and this is Paul's, I think, most political statement yet, and we forget that this is attached. This is all the same thing. Our Bibles sometimes put a little title in the middle to say these are two different ideas, but I think this is all one idea. Paul continues his discussion, 13, 8 to 10. Let no debt remain, out, un, remain outstanding. This word debt, earlier, the verse before he says, give to everyone what you owe them. And now he's saying, let what you owe them, let, let you owe them nothing. It's the same word, the debt and owe. It's the same word. Paul is continuing the same thought. So when he says, give to everyone what you owe them, taxes, if it's taxes, revenue, if it's revenue, respect, if it's respect, honor, if it's honor. But let, do not owe anyone anything let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Whatever other command there may be, they're summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul's takeaway, his conclusion to our relationship to governing authorities is to love one another, is to love our neighbor. The continuing purpose of the Jewish laws, according to Paul, is to point us to Jesus. Paul's talked a lot about laws, and this is the last time that he mentions the law again in the book of Romans, to culminate in loving our neighbor. The summation, the fullness of the law, the fullness of Jesus' kingdom is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I say this as a political statement because for Paul, loving our neighbor is about everything. It's about how we live together. It's about the choices that we make as individuals. But it's also about how we are to form our communities, our churches, our families. But it's also how we engage in the structures and the actions of our communities and our city in the country and the world. Uh, author and podcaster Caitlin Scheiss, in her book, The Liturgy of Politics, she writes this, and this is better than anything I could ever say. Our common life together will always involve the government in some way. When we wake up in the morning, our eyes open in neighborhoods that are determined by politics. The racial and ethnic makeup of our communities aren't an accident. They are greatly influenced by government decisions about zoning laws and long histories of legal segregation. The schools we attend are also implicated. Local and national policies affect the opportunities that our neighbors have access to. The stores we shop at are governed by policies that protect or neglect workers and businesses. The food we buy is influenced by politics that subsidize or regulate food industries. The cars we drive require gas, an industry with significant political implications for foreign policy and environmental law. It's everything. You can't go to the store without engaging in some sort of political, without engaging in the government in some level. 
She goes on to say that our political beliefs and advocacy are not primarily built on grand sweeping claims to which we must mentally assent, but they are often built on ordinary impulses and biases that we inherit and absorb in small everyday actions. Imagine if we engaged in all of these actions, big and small, mostly small, through the lens of how am I loving my neighbor? Imagine if we began our discussions and thinking about every policy, infrastructure, political campaign with the question, how does this help love my neighbor? Imagine if we engage with people of different views and opinions, if we began with the question of how can I love them as my neighbor? We are called to wrestle with our relationship to government in light of our faith, to do things like pay our taxes. But as commentators Walsh and Kismet say, Paul makes it clear the only real obligation is to love one another. In the face of a state that demands as its rights, taxes, tolls, fear, and honor, Paul has been describing a community where the only law is love. What does it look like when the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed king is on the throne? When God reigns as the utmost authority in our lives, in our families, in our churches, in our communities. When we live as if Jesus really is our Lord. Well, what it looks like is love. We are called to love. Even though, as Paul says at the end of this chapter, we are still living in the night. He says the night is almost over. And we are called to live as people of the light, as people of the day. People who hold our political opinions with humility through the lens of the kingdom of God. People who seek the common good even when it is costly to us as individuals. People who stand for what's right and overcome evil with good in all areas of our personal and public lives. People who owe no one anything but love. Loving our neighbors, clothing ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we long to be faithful, to be faithful to you, to be faithful to what you say in the scriptures. We thank you, Jesus, that you did not show us a kingdom a king that uses violence and terror and fear, but one that uses love, who cares for those who are outcasts, who are on the edges, and brings them in to the center. We ask God as we continue in our lives to wrestle with um, that relationship between our faith and our action uh, in the world, we ask that you would give us uh, discernment and wisdom by your Spirit to make good choices to ref that reflect you and your ways. But most of all, God, we ask that as you love us, that we would love others, that your Spirit would enable us to live lives, lives of owing no one anything but love. 
that the question of how to love our neighbor would be over all of our decisions and our thoughts, our ways of being and, and our wants. And we know we cannot do this alone, but only by the power of your Spirit working in us and amongst us. And so we offer you ourselves to your kingdom and to your glory and for your will on earth being done. Amen.